0: Hello, it's the week in art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Tefaf Art Fair is the Old Masters Market struggling. Plus, the donation that will transform Paris's Institut du Monde Arabe, and the Rococo artist Rosalba Carriera in Berlin. As the European Fine Art Foundation or TEFF, opens its fair in Maastricht in the Netherlands, we look at this major moment in the market calendar what it tells us about the strength or otherwise of the market for historic art and particularly the old masters. The art newspaper's acting art market editor Annie Shaw joins me from the fair. The Institut du monde arabe or Arab World Institute in Paris has just received a major gift of more than 1600 modern and contemporary works from the French Lebanese dealer and collector Claude Lemont and his wife France. a collector that will transform the displays in the Institute's museum. I talked to the director, Nathalie Bondil, about her future plans and the project underway to renovate the Institute. And this episode's work of the week is a self-portrait in red chalk by the Venetian Rococo artist Rosalba Carriera. Dagmar Kornbacher, the director of the Kupferstich Cabinet in Berlin, tells me about the drawing, which is a key work in Muse or Maestra, an exhibition of work by historic Italian women artists at the museum. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the 36th edition of Tefaf, the art fair in Maastricht in the Netherlands, opens this weekend. It remains one of the landmark moments in the art calendar, even after a bumpy couple of years during the pandemic. The fair bills itself as covering 7,000 years of art history, but is perhaps most associated with the old master's market, a field that commentators have described as increasingly niche and tightening. But what's the mood in Maastricht? I spoke to Annie Shaw, our acting art market editor, who's at the fair. Annie, one of the things that's often said about the old master's market is that it's in decline or it's narrowing. Tell us what the truth is.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a good question. Yes, I'm I'm here at TFAF Maastricht (laughs) where it it won't surprise you that most dealers who have obviously got skin in the game would disagree with that characterisation, that it's in decline. One of the comparisons we often make is, is with the contemporary and modern art markets, which have obviously meteorically risen over the past decade or two. Many dealers here would say, in fact, that the old masters market perhaps is treading water by comparison. But I would like to just sort of talk about the figures here because, you know, anecdote is one thing, but figures is another. And, you know, just to give you some of the figures here, European old masters represented just 4% of fine art auction sales in 2021. Um, And that's according to the latest Art Basel UBS Art Market report. Auction sales did rise that year by 65%, um, but that was driven by a handful of expensive lots and that came off a 15-year low. So, I mean, I've seen one figure from Art Tactic, which suggests that one old master picture can make up between 20 and 40% of the entire sales for a year. So this is very much a market driven by trophies, certainly in
0: terms of of the figures. Of course, one of the interesting things about that is, that shift towards the modern and contemporary is something which is actually relatively recent. I was thinking back to a conversation I had with Martin Bailey on the podcast not that long ago. And before those Van Goghs were breaking the records in the 1980s, a Mantegna held the record for the most expensive price for an artwork at auction. That's not likely to happen now, really, unless it is Leonardo, right?
1: Yes, so that's very much the case. I mean, I think we're seeing sort of excitement for those very top level names like the Rembrandt, the Leonardos, that otherwise, you know, we're not going to see, see those prices. I think it's something else I would mention is that the old master dealers tend to say that a lot of their business isn't done at auction, unlike modern contemporary art, which is very speculative. A lot of the old master trade is done privately. So we have to also sort of consider that the auction results that are public don't necessarily tell the whole picture.
0: Absolutely. And of course, the biggest issue is supply, right?
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, that's the perennial problem. There is only a finite amount of material in the old master market. And in particular, top-top grade material is in is in short supply. I mean, of course, there are lots of great things available if you can't get your hands on a on a Jan van Eyck, for instance. One dealer pointed out to me that the problem for the old master picture market is, is the extremely restrictive export policy that Italy has. And I didn't know this. Italy has a large supply of old master paintings, but if Italy were to change their system closer to the French one, for example, that could have a huge impact on, on supply in the market.
0: So basically, what that means is that works by old masters can't leave the country very easily. Is that the point you're making?
1: Exactly, yes, exactly that. I think France recently, I think a year or two ago, changed their, their rules so that most paintings now over 50 years old don't need a licence unless they are valued at €300,000 or more. And I think it used to be €150,000. So so yes, there's greater ease there for export.
0: Nonetheless, if you are going to see really top-notch works at a fair, that's likely to happen at Tefaf, isn't it?
1: Exactly. I mean, TFAF is the place dealers bring their most prestigious works. You know, they really do save them up for this this point in the year. And we have everything here from, you know, exquisite 19th century uh, sculpture to to rare books. There's a Guido Reni of Saint-Jerome with Gallery Canassa of Paris. So this is really, you know, the place to bring the top grade material.
0: But the problem is, I guess, in the old master market. And it's, it's something which actually Todd Levin in an article by Scott Rayburn, a colleague of ours, said very aptly I think when he said that there are no A plus works by A plus artists left and so you either have B plus works by A plus artists or A plus works by B plus artists that on the one hand it sort of says there is a much bigger market than is often made out but it also says the really really you know sort of absolute headline making works are few and far between right?
1: They absolutely are it's kind of the holy grail I suppose for the old master dealer is is to find these absolute top top braid works by the A-plus artists. There is a work on um, Agnew's stand which has been attributed to Rembrandt. It's this very small portrait head of a man which the gallery told me that the TFAF vetting committee has said they needed more time to investigate the attribution. So the work is is on the stand but it's reportedly not for sale. So there's a potentially a new discovery there, there a question mark over it, but it just kind of illustrates the point of how important and fraught it almost is trying to find these very, very high quality works by those top names such as Rembrandt.
0: Absolutely. Can you tell us what the mood's like on the floor, as it were? You've only been able to get in for a couple of hours before talking to me, but how's the mood there?
1: Well, you know, it's the 36th edition of, of the fair and it's back to its usual springtime slot after a slimmed down June edition last year, which... Unbelievably, you saw an attempted armed robbery. So, dealers are really saying that this is the first proper edition since the pandemic. And I have to say, the fair's only been open for two or three hours, and there has been a steady trickle of sales being reported, not at the very, very top end, but dealers are transacting. And, you know, you have to also bear in mind that, unlike um, many of the contemporary art fairs, booths are not pre sold before the fair opens it's very much frowned upon here though I'm sure dealers are obviously covering their costs and, and, and you know reaching out to their clients ahead of time so the mood is quite buoyant and people are very happy to be back so yes I'd say it's, it's off to a good start this year.
0: Another thing that obviously disrupts that ability to make instant sales and so on is the different kinds of work right I mean it's a really interesting point about old masters that old master collectors are often thought of as connoisseurs as opposed to a modern and contemporary collector who's seen as being more trend obsessed or investment driven or so on. It's a completely different way of transacting, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. I spoke to one of the dealers in the showcase section and that's for galleries that are under 10 years old and you know, he said that some of his sales have taken him 8 years some have taken eight minutes but some have taken eight years and he just really put it to me that this is not a market for those in a rush and it is not a market for those who are faint-hearted and he very you know succinctly put it that here we have an object which might be 500 years old so what is eight years in the grand scheme of things but yes this is a very much more considered slower moving market there's a great deal of research and connoisseurship involved in bringing these works to market and then obviously selling them into these collections. So yes, it is very much the antithesis of the sort of frenzied, inflated contemporary market that we're sort of
0: used to. And of course, a huge distinction is how you make the new discoveries, how the dealers will make the new discoveries. Of course, if if there's an exciting artist emerging from art school, a dealer of contemporary art can just snap them up and they'll be at the fair. Whereas, of course trying to find new discoveries in the old master market is another kind of holy grail, isn't it? It is, very
1: much so. I mean, exactly. It's a way of bringing new blood to an older market and to older works. There's a, quite a nice presentation here from Stuart Lockhead, who is showing two 19th century female artists, Charlotte Bernard and Félicie de Fauvo, And de had a show at the Musée d'Orsay in 2013. So she's slightly better known. But Bernard is something of of a rediscovery. And as Lockhead put it to me, you know, he said museums are particularly interested in filling the gaps in their collections. So there's a real appetite here for works by female artists. And also another trend that I'm, I've, I've noticed, I mean, I was here last at, at TIFAS in uh, around eight years ago, I think. And I'm noticing, not a great deal, but more depictions, more pictures of black sitters. And this is something that another gallerist spoke to me about, William Elliot of, of Elliot Fine Art, who opened his gallery in London three years ago. And he'd sold three works very quickly, one to a US museum, one to a private collector in the US, and one to a European collector. And what's interesting about him is that he has an interest in North African and Middle Eastern subjects. And he noticed how there's a growing interest in black and brown subjects, particularly, again, among museums looking to diversify their collections. So we are beginning to see these shifts and these sort of new discoveries and new new contexts being introduced to this very, very stale male pale uh, market.
0: And what about the actual makers of the work? Because that's another thing, obviously, in museums, particularly within the context of modern and contemporary work, we're seeing increasing numbers of artists from, for instance, the Global South, from non-Western countries, from Latin America, from from Africa and from Asia, becoming absolutely thrust into the centre of the canon. Is that happening in the historic market to the same degree?
1: No, not at all in the same degree. I did a sort of quick count, and I think there are around 10 galleries here who deal in works by artists from the Global South, from Africa, from South America. Many of these dealers, or I'd say half of those dealers, are sort of what we would call ethnographic dealers. So they deal in art from Africa and Oceania, etc. So it's a very different history. It has, until now, been written as a very different history. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of looking at artists working in those other parts of the world, which hasn't really been done in any great way to date.
0: Going back to the the whole idea of collectors and buyers and who, who the people are that are going to snap up these works. Is there any sense of that crossover? It's been much vaunted. I can remember the first edition of Freeze Masters. We were talking about you know, the crossover collectors, people who are going to buy old masters, buy works from Africa, buy works by contemporary and modern artists. To what extent has that ever actually happened? Yeah. <laughs> and it's... to what extent is Tefaf trying to approach these people yeah. and appeal to them?
1: I have to say, there isn't a great deal of evidence at the opening here. Typically, the old master collector is of is of a certain age. He's male, he's European, and they are very much in evidence, you know, here at the opening. Dealers say they are beginning to see a new generation come through, you know, younger people with a different approach. And this kind of collector may be, rather than focusing on a specific school or artist, as with the older generation, the new type of collector might just like a particular image or the story it tells. Or, you know, they might like mm-hmm. the weird subject matter. So it, it's very much the world of Bosch or skulls or witches. I'm also hearing, you know, the, the younger buyers are also into modernistic still lives, especially 17th century Spanish or early Leatherlandish still lives, or portraits which are direct and challenging, or again, the very big names, you know, Rembrandt, Leonardo, etc. I have to say, there isn't a great deal of diversity in the audience here. I'm not seeing that on the fair floor. There are a few Chinese advisors and collectors here, as well as some from other parts of Asia in the global south. But dealers say their clientele, you know, largely remains American. And, And by that, I mean, There is a significant private cohort, but American museums are big buyers and Northern European collectors. So we're not yet seeing the same influx, for example, of Asian collectors that we have seen in the modern and contemporary markets, unless it's it's for those
0: very big names. And in terms of the way that... Tefaf is marketing itself? Is is there any sense that it's sort of borrowing strategies from that very successful sale of the Leonardo at Christie's in which the Leonardo was included in a contemporary sale? Is there any sense in which Tefaf is looking at the old masters through a sort of contemporary lens?
1: I think there's certainly an attempt to recontextualise old masters. I mean, I think most people think the Salvatore Mundi marketing campaign genius as it was, was a one-off. But I do think we are seeing more crossovers happening with the contemporary art world. Melanie Gurlis reported in the Financial Times this week that Starchy Yates is launching an old master's division. And I've been speaking with Nicholas Hall, who's here at the at the fair, and he tells me he's thinking about future collaborations with contemporary dealers. In 2018, he collaborated with David Sverner on an exhibition called Endless Enigma, Eight Centuries of Fantastic Art. And he told me that he sold a late Titian to a contemporary buyer as well as medieval sculpture and a Goya drawing. Mm. So there is this crossover beginning to happen. I think that dealers individually are beginning to look at these possible crossovers and much talked about crossovers. The problem being is that I think, you know, an old master doesn't look great in a white cube. So it's how does a dealer bridge that divide? But I'm certainly hearing of more initiatives, more collaborations are afoot.
0: It's really difficult, isn't it, for fairs of this nature in comparison to contemporary and modern fairs, because I'm really conscious that it's really easy to freshen up a contemporary fair because there's an endless flow of artists. But while I love Freeze Masters in terms of the visiting experience, I'm conscious that 10 years on, it looks pretty much the same every year. There are a few novelties every year, but pretty much the same every year in terms of its basic appearance. And I suppose the freshening up of a fair which deals with 7000 years of history is actually much more difficult than if you're dealing with 10 years of history to a certain degree
1: yes absolutely i mean yes TFAF has a big task on its hand i mean i would say the individual booths here you know the ones that really stand out are beautifully curated you know and they're very much the antithesis of the white cube you know you get these very different experiences going into you know Richard Green's booth or Dickinson's booth or a rare books booth you know or one that has sort of these wonder cameras set up so yes I think for a fair to sort of look at its overall rebranding is quite the task but individual dealers certainly bring fresh and interesting presentations to the fair and doing and so I suppose on that individual level.
0: So lastly what do you think the future is for Old Masters then?
1: Well That's a big question and one that I have been also asking dealers. Look, I mean, I think there's no shortage of interest in old master paintings. The Vermeer exhibition in the Rijksmuseum, it's sold out, even though it doesn't close for three months. It's the same with the Prado or the Louvre. You know, there are always queues to get in. So I think there's no shortage of interest from the public in these kinds of pictures and, and works of art. Another dealer highlighted to me how fashion labels like Jonathan Anderson, Uh, Ralph Simmons, Vivian Westwood, Givenchy, you know, to name a few, they've appropriated old master motifs. So this will have an effect on wider audiences. Will this affect the market? Possibly, you know, I think if there's sort of greater awareness in the wider public, I think there's also an increasing feeling that old master paintings are undervalued compared with sort of just about everything else in terms of the art world. So I guess it is all to play for.
0: Annie, thank you so much. Thank you. TEFF Maastricht continues until the 19th of March. And if you're heading to the fair via the Vermeer exhibition in Amsterdam, do listen to our special Vermeer podcast, which was published on the 9th of February. Coming up, the Institut du Monde Arab and a Rosalba Carriera self-portrait. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The nave of Notre Dame in Paris will be reopened for religious services and visitors in December 2024, five and a half years after the fire that destroyed it. The news was announced this week by General Jean-Louis Georgelin who heads the agency in charge of the cathedral's reconstruction. Immediately after the catastrophe on the 15th of April 2019, the French President Emmanuel Macron promised to rebuild the Gothic monument within five years. A statement criticised by many observers in light of the extent of the damage. According to the French Culture Ministry, work will continue through 2025, notably to rebuild the spire, which will be a copy of the one created by Vélez-le-Duc in the 19th century. The complete restoration of the building, accompanied by a renovation of the forefront, might continue until 2028. Archaeologists have announced the discovery of a 9-metre-long tunnel above the entrance of the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, home to the tomb of the 4th dynasty pharaoh Khufu, who ruled in the 3rd millennium BCE. The tunnel was unearthed by Scan Pyramids, a consortium launched in 2015 by researchers at universities in France, Germany, Canada and Japan, as well as Egypt. Zahi Hawass, Egypt's former antiquities minister, last week hailed the tunnel as the most important discovery of the century. It will lead to more revealing secrets He added, saying that there is a great possibility that the tunnel is protecting the actual burial chamber of King Khufu. And finally, Adam Weinberg, the director of the Whitney Museum of American Art, will leave the museum when his current contract ends on the 31st of October. It marks the end of a transformative 20-year tenure at the helm of the Whitney. Weinberg's directorship has included the relocation to its Renzo Piano Design building in Manhattan's Meatpacking District in 2015, helping the museum expand its audience from 400,000 visitors to 1.2 million in 2019. Under Weinberg's leadership, the museum's also increased its endowment tenfold from million to 400 million and more than doubled its staff from 200 to more than 400. He'll be replaced by Scott Rothkopf, who currently serves as the museum's chief deputy director and chief curator. You can hear an interview with Rothkopf in our feature on the Jasper Johns retrospective that he co-curated in 2021 in the episode of this podcast from the 7th of October of that year. And you can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This March, Christie's New York presents Asian Art Week featuring the highly anticipated auction of J.J. Lally Co. For nearly 40 years, J.J. Lally Co. presented exceptional Chinese works of art to collectors, connoisseurs, and museums worldwide. Experience Hockey Great Wave, important Gandharan sculpture, 20th century work by Manjit Bawa, and a rare 17th century Huanghuali folding chair. Explore Christie's Rockefeller Plaza gallery beginning the 17th of March or visit christies.com slash Asian Art Week for more. Welcome back. Now in the latest print edition of the art newspaper and now online is an interview with Claude Lemond, the dealer and collector behind a major donation of works to the Institut du Monde Arabe or IMA, the Arab World Institute. The donation consists of 1,677 works made by 148 artists from the collection of the French Lebanese dealer and his wife France and it's triggered plans for a new 6 million euro museum space at the Institute housed in one of Jean Nouvel's most famous buildings on the left bank of the Seine. To find out more, about the Institute's plans, I spoke to Nathalie Bondil, its Director of Exhibitions and Collections. Nathalie, I'd like to begin by talking about the Le Mans Collection. What is it and what does it allow you to do?
2: Well, the Le Mans Collection is a great major donation uh, to the Institut du monde arabe, the uh, World Arab Institute in Paris. We are lucky to receive more than 1,600 works of art of um, modern and contemporary Arab artists. And thanks to this uh, great donation, we'll be able to renew completely uh, the museum and we will be able to open the very first uh, museum dedicated to modern and contemporary Arab art, Western country.
0: Right, okay. Uh, It really is transformative, isn't it? Because you did have some contemporary and modern works before them but very few by comparison so it almost triples the collection is that right?
2: In fact it more than doubles the collection because since the uh, 80s 85 uh, to be precise uh, we collect more or less 700 works of art uh, it was thanks to Bram Alawi, who uh, had a great eye and uh, it was a visionary decision to acquire Arab modern and contemporary art in the 80s But now, thanks to the uh, Claude and France Le Mans collection, uh, we have more than uh, 3,000 works of art, which is completely unique uh, in uh, the Western world.
0: Can you say something about what it means to be an Arab museum as opposed to... Other kind of museum. You say it's unique, but in what ways is it unique? And, And it seems to me that crucial here is the fact that the Arab states were involved right from the start in setting up the museum. And therefore, it has a certain location within the states themselves, even though it's based in Paris.
2: Uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, the best collection in Arab art are in the Arab world. Uh, for example, I'm uh, thinking about the Mathaf in Doha or the uh, uh, Barji collection uh, in Charja. There are more, but uh, I would say that in uh, United States or uh, in UK or in France, Obviously, uh, some uh, major uh, museums uh, like uh, the MoMA, like the uh, Pompidou uh, Museum or the Tate do have uh, some Arab artists, but they do not just collect Arab art. So what we will be able to present uh, in the IMA, the Arab World Institute in Paris, will be a complete panorama or almost complete panorama about this fantastic stage. I would say that there is uh, some, one thing we have to precise, we cannot reduce uh, Arab artists to their Arabity, because obviously they belong to the world. And in fact, they did belong to the world uh, since the uh, 20th century. Uh, they were dialoguing uh, with uh, France, uh, with the uh, United States, uh, with the UK, and uh, they were already belonging to the global world. And I would say that uh, what we want to do is uh, to repair, to recognise their fantastic talent and uh, to the art history, which is now uh, not enough uh, recognised.
0: Right, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, there is a process going on in some of the museums that you just mentioned, for instance, and I think particularly about the Tate in London, there is a clear process to reinvestigate the modernist canon is that something that you feel you can do too in essence to give modernism across the Arab world a kind of prominence and a kind of historical depth I think importantly that it perhaps hasn't had up to now
2: you are absolutely right in fact we can't consider modernity to be part just of uh, our normative artistry now we have to uh, consider those other modernities which Cannot be qualified only by a nation or through a continent. Those modern artists uh, were in different countries. They used to study, to display, to exchange with uh, different artists. They already belonged to some international stages. So, in fact, it seems a little bit uh, paradoxical as an Arab World Institute to uh, present uh, Arab art, but with this idea, which is also including diasporas and uh, other artists uh, who uh, live everywhere. So uh, the glaze is much more intercultural. The glaze is much more about how we can erase uh, this difference between the North and the South, how we can uh, circulate the words, uh, using words by uh, Achille Bembe, the philosopher, So it's important to uh, give their place, but also not through a nationalistic point of view, really by creating bridges and dialogues and exchanges uh, like the Édouard Glissant one-word
0: philosophy. Right, absolutely. It's interesting how you're talking about literature and philosophy and so on. It seems to me, just from talking to you now, that that's going to be absolutely integral to the way that you display the collection from now on and indeed have up to now.
2: In fact, uh, I had the opportunity before to work on uh, other modernities because I'm not a specialist in Arab art. I'm learning always a lot. Uh, but I would say that we can understand uh, the same strategies in order to have their own identity, how to uh, belong to our global artistry. Having worked on uh, Peruvian modern art or Cuban modern art or Mexican modern art or uh, indigenous art, so we can see the same strategies uh, which belong to our centuries, and which also aim to uh, define a global artistry, which will not be only seen through a Western glaze, but also seen through uh, different glazes.
0: And can you acknowledge the kind of complexities in perhaps the political disturbances of the past as well? Can you confront those head on?
2: Oh, definitely. And this is, uh, of course, uh, one important uh, goal, especially... Uh, In France, obviously, uh, because of the decolonization, we have to face uh, this uh, past uh, without any taboo, but with pleasure and with joy, because I do think that uh, it's an extraordinary uh, project. I think that it is the right time. In fact, we need to do so. And also because uh, at the Arab World Institute, we work a lot with schools, with national education. Decorization, Algeria war and uh, other interface challenges uh, are part of the program. And we work a lot with teachers and they want to have those windows which open and help them to uh, explain to uh, the younger generation. So I think that uh, this project is not just important in terms of a scholarship, but will be also important in terms of togetherness.
0: Right. And does that togetherness extend into the very kind of febrile climate in France, as there is in many parts of Europe, in relation to the relationship between Northern Europe and Arab countries and so on. You know, Marine Le Pen did very well in the French elections not that long ago. So to what extent can you confront that and in in fact reach out to perhaps visitors that don't yet visit the Institute?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, We we do have a political duty in terms of uh, being political is... uh, being relevant for the city, for the civil society. And uh, this uh, uh, new museum will uh, help uh, people to understand our common history, uh, not by building uh, walls, but by building uh, bridges. And I think that all the challenges this uh, radicalization were well, facing, not just in France, by the way, but also in the United States, with Trump, etc. Uh, So uh, the soft power we have in our hands uh, will be very, very useful because we we talk too much about the Arab world through wars, through terrorism, uh, and in fact, our knowledge about this incredible uh, culture is not enough recognized. We have to promote this culture, which is our culture. In fact, in the 20th century, Paris could uh, be uh, qualified as an Arab capital because many, many artists were to Paris. So uh, we need to receive, to welcome with joy and enthusiasm this uh, part of our own history.
0: And how do you guard against maintaining colonial structures in the future, if you like? Because obviously, you know, Paris is a former colonial capital. So how do you ensure that you maintain a kind of post-colonial voice if you like is it through sort of reaching out to partners across the arab world or or can you innately even members of staff in the museum or so on how do you maintain a kind of decolonial mentality
2: it's a long process but i would say that thanks to the new generations uh, things are going uh, better and better I would say that uh, the uh, IMA, Arab World Institute, is for me a perfect decolonial institution because it has been created in uh, 79 uh, thanks to the uh, French uh, Presidents of Republic and with the uh, Arab League. So uh, it has been created uh, after decolonization and we still work with each uh, embassy. So in terms of governance, we uh, work with France but also with the uh, Arab countries. So this is why it is easier at IMA to work uh, with such perspective, and especially because uh, the majority of the team come from uh, the Arab world because they are related thanks to their family, etc., etc. So it is not an issue at IMA, but of course uh, we need to uh, expand this vision uh, outside of our walls.
0: Absolutely. And one of the ways that you're expanding that vision beyond the walls is is by having shows outside of France. And I know that you've just inaugurated a show in Rabat in Morocco. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, uh, just one week ago, uh, we inaugurated a big exhibition uh, at the Mohammed VI Museum in Rabat about uh, Arab modernities. It was a very, very touching moment because it was the very first and it is still the very first exhibition devoted to uh, Arab modernities in this country. Of course, like many uh, Arab museums, they have fantastic or a great collection of national artists, but they didn't know so well or so much about uh, this Arab world artist. So this exhibition with great masterpieces from our collection will help those audiences from uh, Morocco to understand all the links they have with different artists from different countries uh, from their world, but not just from the Arab world, but also linked uh, with the uh, Western world. I do not want to reduce to um, narrow nationalistic point of view this stage.
0: Now, tell me about the 6 million euros project for the new museum, as it were, or the reinvigorated museum. Are you going to be sort of curating it alongside architects so that there's a sort of integration of both the kind of curatorial vision and the kind of spatial vision, if you like?
2: Yeah, we just received a big grant uh, thanks to the French Ministry of Culture, uh, which is uh, a première for the Arab World Institute because we uh, depend on the uh, Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs. Thanks to this uh, grant, we will be able to renew completely uh, the installation, storages, inventory, etc. Finally, we will be able to put online our collection, So uh, it is an important project for our collections. But of course, there will be some impact uh, with the building. As you know, the building has been uh, conceived by Jean Nouvel when he was young. It's an iconic building. And what uh, we want to do is to restore the um, first vision of uh, the architect by opening the windows uh, towards uh, the river, towards the city, etc. We are lucky because this building uh, has been conceived especially for its mission. It's not a palace, it's really a building which refers to uh, the oriental architecture And so uh, thanks to this big project, uh, we'll be able to renew uh, this uh, preliminary vision. I think that we have um, a jewel in hands and I'm eager to open it uh, in the end of 25 or 26. I don't know.
0: Right. And of course, by that stage, the museum, the institute, will be 40 years old. And so it will have a legacy. And I guess it, one of the interesting things is to what extent will you bear that legacy in mind when you make the new displays? Or to what extent will you see it as a kind of real chance for a kind of renovation, a real promotion of a kind of new way of seeing the collections?
2: Yeah, it will be a new vision. It will be an important uh, gesture for the recognition of the uh, Arab art history, especially for modern and contemporary artist but it will be also very important for education I'm uh, very much dedicated to uh, educative programs so I hope that we'll be able to uh, renew our studios and of course it will be completely unique in our western world so uh, I think that will be before and after this big opening uh, in uh, our western world
0: Well Natalie thank you so much for joining us on the podcast And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The Kupferstich in Berlin this week opened the exhibition Muse or Maestra, Women in the Italian Art World 1400 to 1800. It includes 90 works and features pieces by Artemisia Gentileschi, Teresa del Po and Rosalba Carriera. And it's Carriera's self-portrait in red chalk that we're going to focus on. I spoke to the exhibition's curator, Dagmar Korbacher, about the drawing. Dagmar, Rosalba Carriera made this drawing in 1708. Where was she in her career at that time?
3: She was already a very sought-after artist in all of Europe. And that's really amazing because it's not a typical portrait that we are looking at. It's a very personal drawing, even a private moment she captures there. Rosalba Carriera was um, a very famous portraitist and her works were sought after in, in all over Europe. Everyone wanted to be portrayed by her in the pastel technique. She basically invented or brought up to another level. But what we are looking at here is a totally different drawing. It's the artist looking at herself and if you look closely at the drawing you see the eyes looking a little bit to the left you can imagine she's looking at the mirror drawing herself in red chalk a little bit white tightening the hairstyle is a bit like out of bed Um, she has no makeup she's just so pure and Looking at us in this very pure way, it's really impressive encounter with that artist like questioning us hey women of the 21st century what have you done um, have you gotten any further <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a really good point actually because there's an extraordinary confidence in several ways isn't there in, yes. in her handling that complete control of her medium on the one hand yeah. and then on the other hand as you say the fact that she is portraying herself in such a kind of naked way a kind of direct way there's an extraordinary confidence in that too
3: Yes, exactly. And we are so happy to have this, this drawing here in Berlin because it's really extraordinary to see an artist and a woman artist of that time like this.
0: As you say, she was fated in all the courts across Europe. She's extraordinarily well collected by royalty in Germany, for instance.
3: Yeah, Dresden. In Dresden, they are preparing a big Rosalba Carriera show as well, showcasing their magnificent collection of pastel portraits. But what I find um, really astonishing about this artist is she was Venetian, she had her own workshop not just as a maestra or as as the artist, the head of the workshop, but also as the manager of the workshop. And at that time, this was very unusual that a woman without her husband running the business part of the workshop would succeed in this way. And what I find also very interesting about Rosalba Carriera is that it was especially her mother who took care in networking. So her mother hosted parties to invite patrons or people who would maybe like a portrait by her daughter. So that's very interesting because, of course, the art world was a man's world also at the time. And so that's very very interesting to note about her.
0: Absolutely and, and it was a real family enterprise as well because her sisters were involved in the studio as well right?
3: Yes her, her sisters worked in that workshop as well and a lot of women worked in her workshop and that's also really a a female enterprise and and that's really interesting
0: one of the things that's extraordinary about her as you say she's a real innovator she took pastels to a whole new level but she's a technical innovator as well isn't she because is it right that she effectively invented pastels as we know them today as in the sticks of pastels with which artists now make pastel portraits
3: Yes, maybe that existed a little bit before, but the way she uses it, she brought it to a whole new level. And that's also or may have been a kind of strategy to succeed in a man's world, because you can only succeed if you are different, if you're better. So that was her way of finding a way to be better and to be different, to bring that pastel drawing to an entirely new level
0: do you think the delicacy of her handling in this portrait as well owes something to the fact that she started as a miniature painter because she was working on snuff boxes wasn't she to begin with
3: exactly exactly yeah I think so yes there's also some tiny details where you can see yeah she's actually used to these mini school details and that kind of thing
0: Tell me about the atmosphere in Venice at the time that she was there, because obviously the 18th century was another period of flourishing in in the Venetian art world. How fated was she in her own city?
3: Well, I I think she was very successful as well because... um, Venice was maybe not the heart of Europe, but one of the main cities where people traveled to. Europeans came to Venice on the Grand Tour. And Venetian art was a sort of thing you had to have she had also certain fame in her own city as well
0: absolutely it feels like the two things you had to come away from venice with were a canaletto portrait of the city exactly. and and then a Rosalba carriera pastel exactly. portrait exactly <laughs> the thing about her obviously which is extraordinary is is that she's able to connect with this amazing network and as you say her mother was involved yes. but what does it say about her particular style do you think that it was so appreciated because she's seen as a rococo artist but there's something in the vigil about her too.
3: Yes I I think you can see this also in that self-portrait drawing here in Berlin that she's a very talented portraitist of course and a lot of women in the Renaissance and the Baroque were very talented portrait artists because this was a genre in which they could Succeed because, as you may know, women were excluded from the normal workshop practice, from the academic training, from the nude drawing, which was mainly drawing from male nudes. So many of the women artists we know were specializing in portraits. And uh, Rosalba Carrera, she was extremely talented, not only because of this, but also because she somehow manages to look into the soul of the sitter and fix it with chalk or whatever she uses. And This is what makes her portrait so appealing today. It's not just the technique, it's not just the workshop practice or the the learnings it's really also the way she looks at people and reveals who they really are and that's also how she looks at herself in that drawing
0: absolutely right the story of her life is obviously as you say one of great success but there's a sort of tragedy at the end of her life because she loses her sight doesn't she for the last 10 years of her life
3: Yes. And that's really dramatic. If you imagine an artist losing the sight, I mean, I'm a museum person, I'm an art person. And of course, I'm a very visual person. So and I just can only vaguely imagine how this must have been for an artist like her really looked so intensely at people.
0: And she even captures it, doesn't she? There's a portrait of her as an old woman and you can see in her eyes that they are distinct from each other so you see that process she's actually confronting that just as she does in this portrait that we're talking about that very direct confrontation with herself
3: exactly yes just exploring what does this to herself in that moment,
0: and of course she advertises herself as well through her portraiture doesn 't she in yeah. that wonderful portrait of herself where she is carrying a portrait she 's made of her sister so it 's almost like a, a business card or a poster for her abilities she 's a great salesperson as well, as well as a great technician and artist
3: absolutely, because uh, art world was a men's world at the time, and of course uh, woman artist was something very special and that's also a strategy of first to use it to Advertise herself through this portrait and a portrait, of course, is always in a double sense, a business signature because on the one hand, she can show her virtuosity, her versatility, how excellent she is as an artist. On the other hand, it's a self-portrait. She shows herself and her, her features and yeah, the patrons may get curious about who is this lady.
0: Absolutely. Now, as we pointed out, she had enormous fame in her lifetime. But after that, her fame was lost effectively. She's only now being reconsidered in some ways. It's a very typical story about what happened to the kind of women artists that you're featuring in your exhibition, isn't it?
3: Yeah, exactly. I think most, if not all, yeah, maybe all of the women artists I'm showing in the exhibition have been forgotten for a long time. The reason may have been that art history was written by men, but of course it happened also to male artists that they were forgotten. And um, the rediscovery of women artists just started about 50 years ago and is still ongoing. And well, Rosalba Carriera is an artist which is relatively well documented because she was so successful. She had her own workshop. Um, she was collected at her own time. But there were so many women artists that are not documented at all. I'm sure we don't know the names of a lot of women artists. Women artists often worked with their husbands, their fathers in their workshops under their name, so there's still a lot of work to be done, a lot of research to be done in the archives, in the museums to find out more about these really remarkable women because if they succeeded in that time this means they were really strong women they were really capable they were really good artists
0: and so your show is a means of addressing some of those stories that have fallen away from history and trying to reestablish some of these artists is that right
3: Yes, that's the idea. The idea is to give more visibility to women artists. And of course, you might say that the women artists of the Renaissance and of the Baroque are dead. They don't care about visibility. But it's also by giving women artists of the Renaissance and the Baroque more visibility. I hope to give more visibility to women artists in the art world today because many of the topics of the problems the women artists then had to face are still existing. And like, if you look at that self-portrait by Rosalba Carriera, it's really like she's putting a mirror in front of us. And I can give an example. like At that time, it was very important, or even since the time of Vasari, how a woman looked like. So the women in Vasari, well, he wrote about very few female artists. There's only one female artist, Properzia de Rossi, whom he dedicated an entire chapter. And when he starts writing about these female artists, they are always molto belle, very beautiful. And I mean, just recently, there was this huge discussion about how Madonna looks at the Grammy Awards ceremony. And it's all the same. So it's still a difference if you are a man or a woman in the art world. Of course, we are also addressing topics like the gender pay gap, which may or may not have existed at the time. Then in the writing about art, there's a lot of discussion if women may be too emotional for making business. (laughs) I mean, it's all these themes, all these topics are still relevant today and we have to look into them.
0: We've got a long way to go. Dagmar, thank you very much.
3: <laughs> thank you, Ben.
0: Muse or Maestra, Women in the Italian Art World, 1400 to 1800, is at the Kupferstich Cabinet in Berlin until the 4th of June. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Annie, Natalie and Dagmar. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.